what you don't prepare yourself for and we have no context for is what happens if I go to war and I am somehow responsible for the harm or, or death of a comrade and I'm still alive. What, what do I do with that? Uh, I was somehow prepared or I thought I was to not come home. Um, I was prepared to lose my life. I wasn't prepared for effectively my life as I knew it to be lost, but for me to physically still be breathing with all my fingers and toes. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and you're here. Thanks for showing up. This is the podcast about people who give a damn, by people who give a damn, and for people who give a damn. This week's podcast conversation is pretty remarkable. My guest is Stephen Elliott. You've probably never heard of him before, but you have heard of the person that he most likely and mistakenly shot and killed while serving as an army ranger in Afghanistan after 9-11. That's all I'm going to say right now because I want Stephen to share his story. It's most definitely not my story to share. During this chat, we talk about his story, of course, but we also talk a bit about veteran care, caring for those that are actively serving in the military, PTSD, our current American military's global footprint, and whether or not we are being helpful, and so much more. So, because I don't want to give away too much, that's all I'm going to say. Let's get right into this conversation. So much to unpack. Here's my conversation with a damn-giving human named Stephen Elliott. Let's go. It's my pleasure to welcome Stephen Elliott to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks so much, Nick. It's great to be here. You came all the way from Olympia, Washington, just for this interview. <laughs> well, kind of. Sort that's, of, that's yeah. Sort of, that's sort of the truth. Yeah. You know, one of our mutual friends introduced us. Yes. Mike. Mm-hmm. Mike F. Mike yeah, Furbot. That's right. Um, and we were, just, we were just catching up before the mic went on about how uh-huh. we all know each other and it's a small world and they're wonderful people. They are. Mike, if you're listening, you better listen because you introduced us. <laughs> uh, if you're listening, know that we both love you and uh, you and your family are awesome. So, uh, Stephen, again, thank you so much for being here. Mm-hmm. We have a lot to cover I'll start by highlighting mm-hmm. that you have a book coming out on yes. May 21. Yes. This, our conversation will actually release next week. So okay. people will have time, if, if they're interested in it, to go and pre-order that because pre-order sales are really good yes, for <laughs> authors. It, it, it proves a lot to the, the, the people watching the metrics, right? Watching yeah. the numbers. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so May 21, your book comes out. It's called War Story, a Memoir. So let's... Let's do a couple things right now. Tell us about the book, but also it's your story, yeah. right? Yeah. And your story involves, um, your story kind of intersects with, people might not know about Stephen Elliott. No. They don't they, know about your book yet. If they know about me, that's probably a little creepy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> but I'm glad that they're getting to know you. But yeah. th- So they don't know about you yet, but they do know about a person that you interacted with, right? Yes. That they're going to know that story, right? And I don't want to give it away right now. I want you to sort of organically share it. Yeah. So- as long as you want to take on that, take us through the book. You sent me a, um, you actually just handed me an actual copy of your book, which I'm very grateful for. Last week you sent me, uh, what did you call it? Uh, it was an advanced reader copy, but um, it was uh, it was like an advanced, advanced reader copy. Got it. Uh, which was sort of the uh, high school bound report version of the book. Yeah, it was so pretty dope. You I, like, I, uh, I felt like, very lucky to get that copy. Super beta test. When this becomes a New York Times bestseller, I'll... <laughs> I'll sell that on eBay. There you go. Said confidential on every page. Like, do not share. <laughs> um, yeah, you just hand me a copy of your book, um, May 21. Why don't you just share your story, uh, the book, the whole thing. Yeah. And take as long as you want. I'll interrupt here and there with sure. some questions that I have. I read some of the book, didn't get a chance to read all of it. Um, so go, let's hear it all. Uh, the the upshot of it, it really is the book is just my own story of war. Sort of the, um, uh, the context is I was... Uh, am from central Kansas, uh, grew up uh, in the plains of, of central Kansas, all my family, you know, farmers, raised cattle, et cetera. And my grandfather, uh, Hugo, um, was a veteran of World War II. And he um, uh, he spent a year and a half on the Italian front, came home after the armistice, and then uh, proceeded to um, live his life as a, as a farmer. 
And uh, my folks were divorced shortly after I was born. And so he was um, very much the closest thing to kind of a dad I had in my life um, and uh, very much a father figure to me. And I, I sort of uh, joke that as a kid, um, uh, in my mind, every man over the age of 60 was two things. They were a veteran of World War II and Lutheran because that's what that's what I was surrounded with. Like sure. that was the yeah, community. Yeah. And so it was really normal. You kind of have this idea that there's all these people, just very unassuming, you know, folks who came back, but um, but who, in some form or fashion, their life was, um, their adult life seemed to start as men with military service. Mm. And so, um, as a kid, you know, I, I played my share of GI Joe and sort of thought that's, you know, maybe what I would do, and and grew out of that, and uh, and ultimately um, thought I would pursue other things. Um, and then uh, 9/11 happened uh, at the beginning of my junior year of college, and. Um, kind of just couldn't shake that as far as this this sense of um, not unlike Pearl Harbor that you know this was our generation's Pearl Harbor in some respects and um, that um, all of those feelings of um, in some respects a desire to serve um, our country um, and there's lots of ways you can serve our country it doesn't just have to be a military uniform but sure, yeah um, but I think um, but that is one way it is one way and um, and so that was really strong. Um, so there was definitely a desire to serve uh, in the midst of that conflict. And then um, also uh, very much a, um, uh, honestly, a, a sense of inadequacy. Um, you know, I felt, honestly, I would describe, you know, my decision to serve in part, there was a selfless component to it. And then there was a very selfish component to it. Um, I wanted to prove myself. And I felt that if I served in the military, if I went to war, and particularly if I served with um, a special operations unit, that I would prove to myself in the world that I was a man. And I wouldn't have to question that anymore. Um, and um, I mean, I'm blessed. My family is is wonderful, and I was blessed with a lot of uh, wonderful folks in my life um, growing up. So I, I, it's not that I didn't have support or, mm, or have sure. affirmation, but um, I felt that gap. Yeah. So three weeks after I graduated from um, from college, I was in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, beginning uh, Army basic training, and, and ultimately I had joined to serve in the Ranger Regiment. And so uh, I went through that process. Um, uh, and um, ultimately was assigned, I completed, you know, selection for uh, for the Rangers and, and was assigned to 2nd Ranger Battalion in, in Fort Lewis, Washington, near Seattle uh, in uh, 2003. So let me interrupt you real quick. Yeah. So yeah. you, um, in, in the book, you talk about how you just showed up one day and you, you didn't say, I want to be you know, an infantryman or I, I, could you, I guess you, I don't know how it works. I've never done it, but you could have asked either. for a variety <laughs> of things, but you yeah. walked in and said, I want to be a ranger, yeah. which is like, that's pretty, it's hard, pretty hard, right? Like <laughs> yeah. these, these are the, the guys that you see in the, you know, in the movies doing all the special things and yeah. all the special operations stuff. Yeah. And so how weird was that, that you asked to go for that versus like, what, what do you want me to do? Like, yeah. It was, and what it, was driving your desire to go like all, you know, I had, I mean, I had talked to, I had talked to some family, um, I had a um, uh, a cousin who he was a, a thirty year SF um, colonel. He was retired, and I talked to him a fair bit just to try and get a handle on you know what what there is out there. But for me, it was just I mean I was finishing a business degree, and I saw the next thirty years of my life behind a desk kind of flash before my eyes, and it was just like, well, I can do that whenever mm. you know I can look at spreadsheets, I can consult whatever whatever that is in in an office. Um, but again, it kind of goes back to the that self-imposed rite of passage. Can I actually be um, a warrior? And that you know betrays a tremendous amount of naivete because again, that's just one expression of being a warrior. Um, there's there's lots of ways that um, we are invited into um, fighting for that which is true, that which is just, that which requires reform. Um, you don't have to hold a weapon in your hands in order to do that. Um, but that's where I was at. The calculus was really that going in enlisted, I could have gone as an officer, I went enlisted because that was the quickest path to special operations. So essentially, if I didn't recycle or get hurt, I could be assigned to the Ranger Regiment, which is a second tier, it's a tier two special operations unit, the same as the SEALs, um, Delta Force and SEAL Team 6 are mm. tier one units. And all those those tier one units basically source their personnel from the tier two units, right? So it was, I would call it, without being disparaging, sort of quote-unquote entry-level special operations. Sure. You can get in quickly, um, be um, operational quickly, and frankly, and this is, you know, you got to laugh to keep from crying, I suppose, um, I didn't want to miss the war. And so, um, mm. which there's, there's a fair bit of... Um, 
yeah, there's there's a uh, looking 18 years on, which is just hard to wrap my mind around. Ranger Regiment, um, SEAL teams, um, special operators, they've essentially been, those units have been continuously deployed for 18 years since 9-11. And so uh, in my mindset at that time, I was like, well, they're going to find bin Laden tomorrow and this thing will all be over with, which that would have been fantastic for a lot of reasons. Sure. So that was a lot of my thinking was I could go in, do something meaningful, what I felt was meaningful anyway. And if I wanted to make a career out of it, uh, that's a terrific foundation upon which to build a career having started there. And if I didn't, if I wanted to do my four years and get out, uh, I felt like I would have been able to not just spend you know, a bunch of time in a schoolhouse getting trained, but I would actually be able to do something uh, and then move on to, you know, whatever else life have for me. So that's sort of the, um, you know, the, the summary of how I, how I made that decision. But yeah, it was, it, it was very clear that when I, you know, uh, quote unquote, marched into a recruiting station in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I was going to school, uh, the recruiter was not used to talking to soon to be uh, graduated business grads um, about um, joining the Rangers. So that was a unique conversation for him. And uh, it became pretty clear at that point that, uh, this was a much more real step as yeah, opposed sure. to a theoretical one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry for the interjection. I just wanted to sort of understand yeah, that framework. Yeah. So keep going with your yeah. So anyway, story. I mean, I um, found myself. Um, you know, things were clicking along and uh, made it through all the selection process. Got assigned to Second Ranger Battalion in Fort Lewis, Washington, and uh, found myself assigned to a platoon um, with uh, two brothers, uh, Pat and Kevin Tillman. And um, Pat, of course, had gained some notoriety um, because he gave up, you know, an NFL contract extension uh, in favor of military service. And his brother Kevin, you know, joined him in enlisting. And and so um, we all served in the same platoon together. Uh, Kevin and I were in the same squad, um, so we worked with each other every day. And we trained uh, together as a platoon for some number of months before deploying to Afghanistan uh, in the spring of 2004. Uh, literally 15 years ago, now wow, uh, yeah. we would have been in Afghanistan. And then, um, I mean, long story short, April 22nd, 2004, um, uh, our platoon was ambushed um, while on patrol on the Afghan-Pakistan border. And um, a variety of confusing and mitigating circumstances um, that led up to uh, that point. Uh, but when the smoke cleared and it was all said and done, uh, we as a platoon had sustained four casualties, uh, two dead and two wounded. Um, uh, and all of those casualties were, uh, we, we very quickly found out, were as a result of friendly fire, uh, where one part of the platoon uh, mistakenly believed another part of the platoon uh, was the enemy and, uh, and treated them as such. Mm. And so um, the two guys that were killed, one was a, as an Afghan fighter who was fighting with us, and the other was Pat. And it was pretty evident, um, and it became more evident as things evolved. Um, you know, we don't know to this day, you know, who fired the rounds that are responsible for Pat's death. But we do know that, um, at least based on a number of investigations, that uh, it's probably likely that, that one of two individuals, one of two rangers in his platoon, um, are responsible for firing those fatal rounds, but again, believing his position to be that of the enemy. Uh, and I'm one of those two men. Mm. And so um, that was... My initiation, um, that was my first and only firefight, and that's sort of where where the story blows open. Well, blow it open, because that's <laughs> like, I mean, when you, like, I mean, I read it, and I know the story, Yeah. and when you just said it just now, I'm like, holy shit, like, that's, that's heavy. Yeah. Because on a few different levels, one is, you just said that was your first and only yeah. firefight, yeah. right? Second, it was friendly fire, mm -hmm. and third, you don't know to this day. No. Like there's that unknown there. Like mm -hmm. it's likely. Or not. Or not. Yeah. And you have no idea. Yeah. So blow it open. Like what <laughs> what happened what happened after that? Like So what happened it, like in the immediate aftermath, it was um, you know, we got back to the FOB. Um, there was a couple of investigations. You know, I was told, our squad was told, tell the truth, you know, um, you're not quote unquote in trouble. They're just trying to understand what happened. You don't have to remember everything. They're not going to expect you to remember everything, but just tell them what you can. And there was no question. I mean, within 24 hours, we, we knew it was friendly fire. That was not in question um, within the platoon. How did you know that? Because of the rounds that were shot or because of yeah, the initially, position? Or initially, like literally the night, um, you know, that the, the following night when we actually moved back to the FOB um, at, at night um, is when I first discovered that um, they were there were 50 cal rounds in the rock behind where Pat was killed. And um, the Taliban doesn't have a 50 cal, um, but we do. 
and that weapon was on my vehicle, manned by my gunner. And so uh, immediately at that point, there was the assumption that um, that it was 50 cal that killed him. So then it was clear to us that, well, wow, it was it may have been him, but then immediately then you start doing the, the tumblers and the lock kind of start falling in place and you say, well, if it could have been him, like I fired where he fired, it could have been me. Um, so, you know, literally 24 hours uh, effectively to almost to the minute is when that that possible realization lands on you. And then you're in a war zone anyway, so um, you're compartmentalizing a lot and um, you have no context for war. It doesn't matter how many times you've watched Black Hawk Down or Saving Private Ryan, mm. you, you just don't. Mm. Um, uh, because until you get to that moment, you've never actually fired rounds at uh, another human being. But then on top of that, um, you have no context for the tragedy of friendly fire. That's not supposed to happen. You know, uh, we're, we're army rangers, you know, mm. we, don't, we don't make those sorts of mistakes. As best as you can in your youthful naivety, you prepare yourself, I say prepare yourself, you, you're aware of the fact that it's a dangerous profession, that you may get hurt, you may not come home. Even though, the, statistically speaking, the training environment is more dangerous than even a war zone, or at least it was at that time. Oh, is that true? Yeah, there was more, uh, up until that point, like um, at that time, there had only been one casualty from 2nd Ranger Battalion, uh, one KIA. There'd been far more KIAs over the years in training accidents, because the training's you know, very realistic, of course. But you prepare yourself for that as best as you can. Um, but what you don't prepare yourself for and we have no context for is what happens if I go to war and I am somehow responsible for the harm or, or death of a comrade and I'm still alive? What, what do I do with that? Uh, I was somehow prepared or I thought I was to not come home. Um, I was prepared to lose my life. I wasn't prepared for effectively my life as I knew it to be lost but for me to physically still be breathing mm. with all my fingers and toes. And so, um, yeah, the, the shock sets in and um, we did the investigations and then we were back out for another couple of weeks doing missions. Um, it was essentially try to get these guys back on their horse and try and get some, you know, sort of uh, some positive, quote unquote positive, whatever that means in a war zone, um, some, some positive action uh, prior to returning home. And then when we returned home, it became very evident. Um, that's when things, you know, really started kind of spiraling out of control. Because, um, unbeknownst to me, there was a wholly different narrative that was being told to the family and to the public. And so, um, oh no! And so we were unaware that there had been or like least, disparaging toward no, or, like or they told. I mean, what were they telling them? What they were telling that what was told was that you know Pat was killed in a in a hail of glorious uh, gunfire by the enemy. So effectively, then when we got back pieces started being put together um, that actually Pat was killed by friendly fire and that the army up to that point had told him uh, that he was killed by the enemy. And so then the army sadly then lost all credibility with the family um, because of that. Sure. And then, um, then things changed dramatically and within, you know, uh, a few weeks of getting back, uh, myself and you know four others um, were effectively dismissed from the Rangers, um, and, uh, and and that was a surprise just because we had just been operational, um, you know, a few weeks prior. So and that was it, effectively like a PR move. I don't like know damage control. It's hard. That, it's hard yeah. to say, but it definitely um, you can make the counter argument that keeping us in the unit in Afghanistan um, was also a PR move. Right. So depending on if you're in the camp that says, you know, those guys, they messed up and they should have been fired uh, versus uh, those guys were in an unfair situation. I mean, you can come down on. I, I mean, I've spent 15 years trying to figure out uh, and I've given up. I don't know. Um, I know that I made uh, the wrong choice um, to fire. Uh, I mean, it's objectively the wrong choice. I, I fired at friendlies um, for lots of reasons that um, made me believe that it was the enemy position. But um, at the end of the day, you made a choice that, um, you know, potentially caused harm to other people. And so it's a very messy, just the, the morality of it, the, the self-justice of it is just, it's incredibly messy. You know, what, what responsibility do I have? Um, is it somebody else's fault? I was just the Joe on the ground put in a situation by a higher commander. Um, this, whole, this whole desire to try and uh, properly assign guilt and properly assign all of that stuff, it's impossible. I mean, if somebody can do it, I'm welcome. I mean, I'm all ears, yeah, but, sure. um, but I, I can't. 
And so, um, so in any case, it, it definitely felt like the, the, the military was trying to um, button it up and, um, and, and move on. And um, that's really hard to do when you've, you've offered something less than the truth, then everything that comes after that, um, even if it is true, um, you've lost credibility. And so they, they put the family through just uh, so much as a result of that. And it, so it, it probably likely would have been, I imagine, everyone has value, don't hear me saying that, but it was yeah. Pat Tillman. Yeah. And he was already this hero, right? Yes. Like he, yeah. he gave up a multi-million dollar contract with yep. the Cardinals to go f- you know, fight post 9-11, right? Yep. Everything about this scenario was was sexy, right? Yes. It, it just was. And so I imagine that if it was, you know, if it was Bill Johnson from Paducah, Kentucky, right. this wouldn't really even be a thing. Yeah. He's right? not, the, he's not the only, I mean, there's 6,000 plus other KIAs in Iraq and Afghanistan right. and um, there's, he's not the only fratricide. Yeah. I mean, the first dozen or so casualties of the Iraq war were all a mass casualty event from fratricide, wow. friendly fire. So, um, so yeah, the, and that's why I say, even in the preface of the book, um, if, if the book is reading, if the story is worth engaging with at all, which I mean, I think it is, I'm biased, but if it is, um, it's not because the story is unique, mm. but it's precisely because it's ordinary. Because it's ordinary, uh, yeah. Because um, uh, if you remove that one single variable, i.e. somebody who played in the NFL, sure. um, there's nothing about that story that is um, particularly unusual mm. in terms of uh, people going to war um, with a certain amount of... Um, naivety and with, um, you know, hope for their contribution, um, and then meeting war head on, um, and then having to, uh, pick up the pieces. Um, that story, uh, whether it's, it happens in a military context, uh, whether it happens in the context of your family, whether it happens in the context of, uh, your work, uh, that story gets told every day. That's what happened. I had no context for it. I was happy, frankly, I was happy to leave the regiment. Um, Mm. um, but, it was a complete um, within you know four months of me of me leaving. Um, that's when sort of the shock began to wear off. Yeah, um, yeah. So let's talk about that. that. Let's talk about so that's spring of two thousand four, summer of two thousand four. You're dismissed or let go or whatever the language is, yep. and now you're out, right? You're yeah. back as a civilian, I assume. No, right? I, no. Did you go? Did you go back? Just yeah. So I had. Okay. So I had my. I still had a four year enlistment. And oh so, sure, yeah. So I was released. Um, I was released for standards RFS. That's the that's the Ranger Regiment sort of parlance. And then I was sent to the big army. I was uh, reassigned to to be an infantryman at First um, uh, Infantry Division of Fort Riley, Kansas. And then I got diverted because some general in South Carolina wanted a driver who had education, which I had a bachelor's degree, and um, who had combat experience. Mm. Why he wanted those two things to drive him around, I don't know, <laughs> but Wild. Uh, that's what he wanted. And so they said, do you want to go work for this guy in South Carolina? And I said, sure. So um, so I spent the, the remaining two years on the East Coast working for a one-star and then a, a two-star, um, which... Um, was providential um, um, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which there was two more investigations that ultimately took place. Um, and um, I, I think it's hard to say, but um, uh, that was a very, uh, the beginning of a very dark time in mm. my life. And, um, and I'm, I'm very grateful for people who were put in my life um, that kind of helped shepherd me along that path as I was still in uniform. Yeah, so how did you, um Let's talk about that. Let's get inside. Yeah, you know the feelings, the emotions, the shock, the stuff going on in your yeah. head. You, you just said dark. You described it as a dark time. What was that like? And how did you, how did you get out of it? Or are you still getting out of yeah. it? Yeah, like just yeah. talk talk through that. And then we'll after I want to get to uh, what you're doing about it. Yeah. right? the Elliott Fund and different things that you're doing. But like that wasn't that wasn't happening back then. So how did you how did you get out of it? Effectively, what what began to manifest in me was. Um, Tremendous amount of guilt, tremendous amount of shame. You know, this whole idea that I, uh, I would go to the military and that would be, um, you know, I'm type A. I was, you know, graduated amongst the top of my class in school, and it was, um, I'm, I'm a good, I'm a good doer. You give me a checklist and you tell me how many points I got to get to get an A, I'll get an A. You know what I mean? That's a, that's my personality, and um, this was uh, the worst possible scenario that I could have imagined in terms of um, an outcome for, you know, my quote unquote contribution to the war effort. And so, um, you know, guilt begins to settle in, shame begins to settle in. Um, uh, I began, you know, 
uh, really exhibiting uh, symptoms of chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. So uh, I'm not sleeping well, nightmares, hypervigilance, depression, anxiety, um, medicating with alcohol, which I wasn't a teetotaler, but I just never had any desire to drink prior to that. Sure. And so, um, yeah, I became a, a pretty high-functioning mess. Um, I was still, I was, I began doubling down on achievement. It's just like, so while I'm drinking seven nights a week, working 15 hours a day, um, I'm working on my MBA online and I'm getting ready to transition the civilian world. It's, it's basically the idea was, um, whatever I can do, I need to stack up more accomplishment between myself and what happened on April 22nd, 2004. And if I, if I stack up enough accomplishment, then uh, maybe I can outweigh what I did. Um, and in the midst of that as well, you become um, very angry. I, I was, um, uh, I was uh, a Christian um, going into that. And during the course of um, particularly those last two years that I was in the army, I walked away from the Lord. And um, I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, it's this, it's the all powerful or all, all loving conversation. It's saying, you know, your word says that you are both. You are a creator, you are the first mover, you are all powerful, and you are all loving. Um, but my evidence and my experience um, indicates that if you are there, that's how prayers began to be prefaced during that time, is if you are there, sure. you're one or the other. Um, because what I'm experiencing sure doesn't feel like both, because why did you allow this to happen? Why did you allow me to be put in that position? Um, you know, why did you allow me to make that decision? And so ultimately I blamed God and I walked away and, um, that didn't help. <laughs> and so that was the path that I was on for a number of years where I basically came to the conclusion that I'm a good person, whatever that means, however you want to define that. Sure. And, uh, I can be a good person and I don't need the complications of this so-called God um, who, when things get really bad, doesn't do what I think he should do um, to provide the outcome that I think he should provide. So yeah, that was that was the headspace that I was in for a number of years. And at what point did, are you, at this point, are you, are you married? You're married? Yeah, so like I met my wife, um, we went on our first date within a month of me getting back from Afghanistan, and it was during the course of that date that I told her what happened, just because at that time, which is um, sounds super weird. It, it, it was pretty normal, um, just because you know we sensed a connection pretty instantly, and I knew that my my future was very uncertain based on what happened. So it felt it felt like at that point it would have been a lie of omission not to um, say, "Hey, this is super strange, and I don't even know how to tell you this." But you know, I mean, she knew I was a ranger and all that. But um, um, so she that was from the outset of our relationship, and then we got married uh, while we were you know, having a long distance relationship, um, the following year in 2005. And then I got out in 2007, um, believing, um, that, Hey, once I get out of this uniform, um, then, and I get a fresh start as a civilian, which I did, got a great job as a wealth manager at a big firm. Um, then the army is the problem. I'm not the problem. Mm. Um, the army is the problem. Once I can put this to rest and get, get into a new narrative, uh, then these problems will go away. And it uh, turns out that wasn't true. So uh, we had lived the first couple of years of our marriage really apart. Um, and she didn't really know at all the extent to which I was self-medicating. She didn't know the extent to which um, I was suffering those symptoms. And so, um, so yeah, I came back in 07. Um, and then financial crisis happens. And um, uh, I was blessed throughout that. Um, the Lord was really faithful to us throughout all of that. But then Turns out the army wasn't the problem, and then by 2009, you know, we found ourselves separating and filing divorce papers because um, I was uh, essentially an isolated, self-medicating mess that knew how to tie a tie and knew how to put on the image that I needed to put on, uh, but inside um, I was just a guilt, shame-ridden, um, God-hating uh, person. So did you guys go through the divorce? Yeah, yeah, we were divorced in uh, end of 09. Okay. So, and then um, during that process is when, I mean, the Lord was working throughout all of that, but that was um, certainly a time where I began to, I began to seek help. Um, I didn't even have a context for what I had. Like I, I saw a counselor 
a few times when I was in the military and, you know, I had a piece of paper that said I had post-traumatic stress disorder. I didn't know what that meant. Um, and, um, you know, I had a prescription for Zoloft in my hand that I never took because that would have required me not drinking alcohol. And that was hilarious. And that wasn't going to happen. That wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So it's just like, you've got your goofy medicine. I don't know what that's going to do. At least I know what this is going to do. And so, um, that was kind of where we found ourselves. And then, um, during that separation period and, and divorce period, you know, I started, turning back to the Lord and, and, um, hitting bottom in that regard. Um, and then in 2010, you know, we, we remarried wow. and, um, so that's in the book. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that whole trajectory is, is there, um, for sure. But that was, I wouldn't say there, there isn't a single turning point. Mm. There are a number of waypoints in the sure. journey where you can say, this was a turn back towards the right azimuth, back towards the right heading. And and that separation and divorce period was certainly one of those times. You know, that's that sums up most people's lives though, right? Like yeah. we want there to be this big, like this big moment. Yep. And in reality, that might happen for some people in some in certain circumstances, but by and large, it's these little things that happen, right? Yeah. It's little things that keep like nudging us in the direction that we should go, right? And then we try to like get off again and then it nudges us back and whatever, faith or not faith, people yeah. know what that feels like, right? right? For their deity or somebody in their life, like pushing them and it's little things. It's not this like, you know, usually this angel appears to you and tells you go, go hit right. her, you know, or whatever. <laughs> that doesn't, just doesn't happen a ton. So uh, three days ago was yeah. April 22nd. Yeah, yeah. What happens every year on that date for you? Because that was this three days ago was 15 years yeah, since yeah. April 22nd, 2004. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, initially for the first number of years, particularly when I was still really sick, um, it was, and I'd even, it, the people would, I'd heard that, you know, it's just like, you know, anniversary dates, kind of like, be careful. And I was sort of like, F that, like stupid. Yeah. Like it cognitively didn't make sense to me, sure. which is just like, I don't think you could have a greater demonstration of pride than to say that, well, if I don't think it makes sense, then it doesn't apply. Mm, it's just like, sure. <sighs> Anyway, it's a very type A thing to do. And it, I'm pointing to myself. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But but the reality is they matter. And mm. so you know there was never. I mean, it was. Um, you know, I was already reliving. You know, uh, a lot of my experiences anyway. And so um, so yeah, anniversary dates were were really hard for a number of years. And you know now, um, kind of on the other side of a lot of healing that's taken place, we don't pop a champagne cork and go to the beach. You know what I mean? Like there's, sure. it's not, um, it's heavy. Yeah. Um, you remember, um, you know, I, uh, I connect and, you know, reach out with um, folks who, well, one particular individual who was in the platoon, you know, I always, we always usually connect on that day and yeah, you remember. Um, but now it's more of a reminder um, for really what, what the Lord has done in my own heart um, and in my own life. And it's, it's more of a reminder of, um, yeah, what, what that day can possibly mean in terms of, uh, taking steps forward. So I think that's, and I think that's consistent with, um, the gospels. It's consistent with, you know, the heart of, you know, Jesus that is the suffering servant. Um, it's not that we're supposed to move beyond suffering, um, to the point to where, uh, it's forgotten, and to the point to which um, we don't uh, have scars. Um, Jesus, when he walked around the earth after his resurrection, he kept his scars. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's something to that, not to say that we become um, identified by our darkest places, that's not who we are, um, but it also means that we don't have to sweep those under the rug. We shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't ignore it. And, no. and so there's, it's a both and reality where yeah. we can remember um, without being uh, pulled back into um, the darkness of those moments. And so I, I just, it's mainly just, you know, like two days, whenever it was, yeah, 22nd, you know, my 17 year old daughter and I were flying, you know, uh, here to Nashville for a conference. And a lot of it is just, it's frankly, just every year um, over the last five years, it just becomes more surreal mm -hmm. um, because um, of how, how of just all the, just the garbage that, that we went through and, um, and how bad it was for so many years. So then it's just like, you're sitting on a plane with my daughter who I almost didn't have much of a relationship with um, because of choices that I was making and pain that I was experience, experiencing. And here we are together doing this thing. Yeah. So it becomes wow. sort of more of like a kind of a pinch yourself moment where it's just like, 
I would not have guessed this and um, don't deserve this. And you're, you're grateful for what you have, um, knowing that Pat's gone, knowing that um, a lot of other people have suffered as well. And so, so it's, it's a both and. It's a, we're grateful we're here and we have the chance to do what we can do with whatever time we're given and also a, a time of remembrance for what's been lost. So there's obviously so many parts of your story that you didn't tell me that yeah. are in the book. Uh-huh. Everybody get the book. Yeah. Did I mention we should get the book? <laughs> but but so let's talk about the Elliott Fund now. Yeah. Right. So all of your, I mean, just wild things have happened and your ups and your downs and your highs and your lows since, you know, leaving the military and, you know, almost you're losing your marriage and then getting it back and the kid, all the stuff, right? Yeah. And now you've started the Elliott Fund. So let's yeah. talk Elliott Fund. Let's talk veterans. Let's talk VA. Let's talk PTSD. Yes. What are you trying to do about it now? Yeah. So the Elliott Fund was started uh, initially just as a pass-through organization because um, one uh, one thing we felt in, in writing the book um, was that if there was any financial proceeds from the book, we wanted to redirect those um, uh, to other organizations sure. that are doing good work. Um, uh, I didn't need to recreate the wheel and do something that somebody else is already doing. Totally. So Which it's is just very like, awesome of you because I come from the nonprofit world yeah. where everybody's trying to start their new thing. And yeah. Like, but but now they don't have risk because you're taking you exactly know? exactly and so and I don't I mean other than it's it's strange because you have a very granular experience having you know been a soldier yeah. but at the same time I'm not a clinician uh, sure. I, I don't have sure. a thirty thousand foot view so um, it, the real question is how do we put our story a story that is um, not unique but every story is unique in its own way. Um, that can be perhaps an on-ramp to understanding the issues and how we can actually meaningfully move the needle forward um, with respect to how do we view and how do we treat the unseen wounds of war. Because so much of my journey and so much of my pain um, was self-imposed, uh, both in terms of my uh, my broken understanding of masculinity, my broken understanding of um, uh, what what somebody who experienced war trauma was, because I viewed it very binary. Mm. Um, either you are an alpha male warrior and you can deal with the consequences sure. of your military service, or you're weak, and um, I'm not the latter, right? I refuse to be the latter. Um, and we don't have a good we don't have a good grasp of the spectrum of you know spiritual and mental health that is the absolute reality, right? Yeah. And I'm just like at any given point in the the day or week, um, we're maybe all over the place with our physical health. Well, the same is true with other elements of our being. And so how do we, that's the broad question. I had unseen wounds that effectively went untreated for years. It would have been the equivalent of, I I got a gunshot wound in April of 2004, covered it up, uh, and then five years later in the midst of divorce, I start unpacking it and figuring out what's even there. So you can imagine you have the wound, but then you have all the other things that you have to deal with because the wound has been untreated. And so, um, you know, just forget war trauma. If you eat nothing but um, pastry, coffee, and cup of noodles, and then wash it down with a bottle of wine every night, you're going to feel like garbage. Yeah, Your diet deteriorates, your sleep deteriorates, like all of these really basic things that do not contribute to your health and so on and so forth. So, um, so what we're doing with the Elliott Fund is one, it's, it's, a, it's a conduit to, if, to whatever extent there's book financial proceeds, we're gonna pass those on to other organizations who are doing good work in that space. It's also a platform for, um, for reform. So um, we've identified with partner organizations um, what we believe are 17 corrective actions for active duty military mental health. A lot of attention gets paid to the VA, rightly sure. so because that's when the problems really begin to manifest. But um, one thing that every part of the VA or every service member who is in the VA has in common is that they were once an active duty service member. And to the extent that they have wounds that are now trying to be treated within a VA environment, those wounds were generally incurred while they were on active duty. Mm. So just like the gunshot wound analogy, imagine if the active duty component didn't treat that wound at all, and then five years later, the VA gets to deal with that. Well, that's that's not going to be a very good scenario. We have we have the ability to you know have care at the point of trauma and woundedness, a spectrum of care that's appropriate, right? And so we've identified seventeen corrective actions that um, you know we're we're now having some conversations with policy uh, makers, um, which is exciting because mm-hmm. our whole. Our whole approach is collaborative. Congress is not the enemy. The DOD is not the enemy. Nobody wants um, there to be, you know, 22 plus service members taking their lives every day as yeah. uh, as a result of untreated mental illness. So if we we can all agree that we don't want that to happen, how do we collaboratively move forward to create and improve um, systems 
in the active duty component um, before they metastasize and become something far worse. And so, um, so we're hoping that you know war story um, can be just a catalyst um, for for that awareness and for that change. Um, because I think everybody gets, I don't say everybody, but I think our society is well aware of the fact that there is this mental health thing going on, um, that war is not good for the soul. And so um, this is not about awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not aware, awesome. Definitely read the book and, and we invite you into the conversation. Sure. Yeah. But um, this is about how do we take that and actually move forward um, into reform. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean tearing down systems to the ground and starting over. We have made as a society, so much progress over a generation. Post-traumatic stress wasn't even a, 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 um, a diagnosis in Vietnam. Sure. And so, um, you know, my generation of veterans, um, you know, we have people tripping over themselves telling us, thank you for your service, uh, versus um, <laughs> excuse me, versus, um, what the Vietnam generation faced. So we, um, in many respects, we, we stand on their shoulders and um, uh, we wanna take the next step uh, in that process. It's not confined, it's no different. I mean, uh, post-traumatic stress, moral injury, uh, wounds of the spirit, those are not confined to people who wear a uniform um, or go to war on behalf of a nation. Uh, we've got a lot of broken and hurting people. And so um, however our story and however those lessons um, from how the military um, engages with that, um, however that can be used, um, we're all in favor of that. And really it boils down to, it's a cultural change. Um, You can't just nail your 10 corporate values on the wall and expect that to actually live. And so at the end of the day, we as people, as humans, um, have to find peace telling our own stories, whatever those are, because the, the single biggest lie um, that we are told is that you're alone, um, nobody could understand you, and if mm. they knew you, they'd hate you and mm. they'd reject you. Um, and that is just that is just the biggest lie. Um, and that separation, it causes breakdowns in family, breakdowns in community, and it's, it's, it's so tragic because so often... And we've probably all experienced that where you feel that fear and then somehow that's broken through and you realize that you're surrounded by people who who absolutely understand and or have been through a lot of the same things that you have. And so, um, you know, our hope is that just by even telling the story that we can help make it safer in the right way um, for people to, to to not be trapped in that lie. Uh, that's what the Elliott Fund is about uh, practically and, and that's what uh, really the hope of War Story is, is to put it in service of that. Thanks for sharing that. I have a few questions that I'd like to ask you. Of course. Um, I want to learn from you. I mean, I've been learning from you the whole time, but yeah. I, so I don't have a story like yours. Yeah. Nobody that I know in my immediate family and even my sort of extended family was active duty, right? Yeah. So that's just, it just wasn't part of my, um, you know, when 9-11 happened, I was living in Guatemala. Mm. No part of me was like, even though I was old enough to, no part of me was thinking, well, sure. that's how I'm going to serve. I thought of different ways and I've, Absolutely. You know, I'm known within my sort of circles as, you know, that, like the pacifist guy, right? right. Like, and I, I've never owned a gun. I never will. Mm-hmm. I have a bunch of my friends that think I'm like a shitty father <laughs> because I won't have a gun in my home. Yeah. And I have my reasons for that. Absolutely. I, I, I think a lot of my friends who shoot guns in their backyards would have an interesting conversation with you yeah. or with other people saying like, you don't even know what happens to you, even if it's in self-defense, like you don't know what happens to you when you point a gun at somebody. That's right. You pull the trigger, you kill them. That's right. Like even if you saved your family's lives, like that will haunt you for the rest of your life, right? And so I don't come from, you know, the family you had where your grandfather, amazing, like it's amazing. He served in, you know, World War II and all of that. That's just not my context. Of course, yeah. So here we are, 2019. (laughs) I don't even know where you are politically, so we won't get into that per se, but you know, while back Trump had promised he's going to bring spending down 5%, right? Yeah. I think 716 to 7, oh, you know, 702 billion or whatever. Right. And just recently he asked for it to go up to 750. Yeah. Um, you know, so we have um, 800 military bases around the world. Uh, not like huge bases, but some of them are small, but 800, we're all yeah. over. It's compared to like, I think uh, I wrote it down, um, Britain, France, and Russia, 
combined have 30. Yeah. And we have 800, right? It, it seems growing up outside the US, then coming back as an adult to yep. live here, um, I've just observed um, a country that seems obsessed mm-hmm. with violence and war. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look back at our history, there's only been a couple dozen years that we haven't been at war about something, yeah. right? Like we've been at war our entire existence as a country, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, like you said, and I, I think that's a fine thing. I think that's a fine thing, but people almost put, they think you're a better person because you served in the military yes. than the, the, my mailman or right. the, the, the Miss Pleasant who teaches my daughter at school or the guy that runs the company. Like there's a different, you're doing different things. Yeah. And obviously I think having a military is a good thing. Every country needs to be protected. Yep. But I think we're at, I personally think we're at a, just a ridiculous level of whatever that version is, right? Yeah. And so what's your response to me on that? Like, what do you say to that? Am I off base? Do we need to have the size military we have right now? Does it need to grow as our current administration is saying that it you know, should? Just, yeah, speak to me. Because you've said multiple times you're a different person than you were back then where you felt like you had something to prove. Yeah. And there was two options in your mind. Be the alpha male that goes and fights or be weak. Like right. those are the only two options. Like, is that you today? How have you transformed? What do you think about our current uh like military sort of structure in the US right now? Where are we currently are? Most of my listeners are in the US. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm certainly no um, you know, wouldn't purport to be an expert on, you know, global threat assessments and you know how we do sure. that. I know you're not asking that, but um, you know, I don't I want to be real careful to, you know, speak within my own competencies observations. I think in general, whether you're an individual, a corporation, a nonprofit, a company, um, a government, good decisions generally don't get made from places of fear. And it feels like we've been operating primarily from a place of fear um, since Pearl Harbor. It's not to say there was obviously a legitimate threat that we needed to respond to during sure. World War II um, For sure. and all of that. But um, it's interesting that for a country and a people that have so much strength, um, strength is never best expressed within the context of fear. And it feels like we're afraid a lot. Mm. And I think that in general does not lead us to a place of good decisions. And I think that, um, I mean, I question, absolutely question, you know, I look at, you know, my deployment to Afghanistan and um, I don't know what that was for, Um, you know, in Mm. terms of, how are we a safer people because of that? Um, I think that the desire in many respects, you know, we as a country have been trying to export a democracy and a value system that we don't even practice here. 100%. So, um, and we continue to um, try and solve non-military problems with military solutions. So regardless of somebody's intent, you know, you're an infantry captain you know, going to Afghanistan, you're a warrior. You're you're trained to direct yep. uh, trigger pullers, and now you're asked to effectively operate as a diplomat within a tribal region where you don't know the culture, you don't know the language, and in six to twelve months, you're going to be back in the states. And so um, that's a. I mean, I feel for, and I know there's a lot of people in uniform. They feel so strongly as they should about wanting to help people who don't have what we have. Totally. And I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, I think that we just have to be really careful. Our military is one tool in the toolbox and it seems to be a tool that we go to far too often. Come on, yeah. And and I think that there's, we have to consider um, both precisely because I am fiercely pro-military that we have to really be careful how we use that very precious tool. Um, because we've, I think we've done a tremendous amount of damage and there's so much residual harm that comes from um, putting people in situations that um, they weren't meant to be put into and using that tool in ways that aren't, aren't um, efficient and playing to fears that are probably grounded in reality. It's not that there aren't terrorist organizations who would be happy to do harm to Americans. Of course there are. But those fears can be used, I think, um, uh, to consolidate power. They've always been used to do that throughout history uh, by creating otherism, 
Um, um, yep. The easiest way to unite a people is to find a common enemy. And um, are there enemies that we have to be vigilant for? And do we need to have a, a robust military, of course? And you know what, what the budget number is in order to have that? I don't know. But I think that there's a lot of underlying motivations, i.e. fear um, being one of the biggest ones, that is actually a tremendous expression of weakness. It's so ironic because it poses as this you know, chest-thumping position of strength. Mm. Um, strongest people in the world, they don't have to prove that they are. 100%. And so I think we've... Be, we've yeah, we're very much in that chest-thumping uh, yeah. mode, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. Um, so, okay, so if, if they, whoever they is, called yeah. you up tomorrow and said, we need you to come in and fix shit, like come in and fix things, we need you to be our president, whatever. <laughs> If that happened to you, we would be in dire straits. <laughs> We'd be in a different <laughs> set of problems. But I like what you just described that balance, right? I feel like that's a healthy balance. Yeah. Where you said, I'm fiercely pro military and yeah. we're probably doing it poorly, right? Yeah. Um, we, we, we are acting out of fear. That is, that is 1000% 1, 1, evident, right? Like, what would you, in this political climate, in this societal climate, and if you don't have an answer that you think you want to share, that's fine. I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, but I think you could probably come up with something. <laughs> um, like, given our current political societal climate, um, our current threats that we do know about outside the U.S., what would you do to unite the American people? Because like things are coming out. I, I don't have all the context, so I might be screwing this up a little bit. But it was this whole story right now about the the military chief that his subordinates were told not to say anything because he like was killing yeah like, seal team seven yeah I seal, think. yeah yeah so yeah. so here's like this high ranking right that yeah. that was is now reported like sniper rifled this girl's head off like yeah. just blew because she was wearing a hijab right and, yeah. and then the kid that was like injured and they he, he you know killed him and like there's that going on right where you have that dynamic where like that's not okay no matter what you think about all of this, yeah, like that's not okay. And you have all these different stories, and it's easy to become so like enraged and say, "Well, it's easy. It's it's easy for me, honestly, coming from where I come as a more like progressive person who does follow Jesus yeah. as a Christian, but yeah. definitely has a more progressive view on things. And I'm I generally try to take care of things, and I try not to act out of fear. I of try to take care of things in a more like pacifistic kind of way. It's easier for me to look at that and become very enraged yes. and say like, fuck all of that. Yeah. Like that is not the way. That's right. And so then I make the military the enemy. Of course. And the military is, the, it's a part, It's a vital part of our society yeah. to protect us from the actual yep. enemy, right? So what would you, I know that was a lot of just like verbal <laughs> vomiting, but like what would yeah. you, what would you do to unite people and to get, kind of pass on your balanced perspective, yeah. communicate that to the very divided American yeah. Uh, so, right um, so yeah, as, as a completely theoretical, non uh, non policy sort of conversation, sure. it's it's e maybe easier to answer that question. Um, I would answer it in two ways. One is uh, recalling gospel context, and then two, um, just even uh, an experience that you know my daughter and I had two nights ago here in Nashville. Um, the first is just it's so interesting to look at how Jesus interacted with what was effectively the Nazi Empire of his time, and it's not to um, in any way conflate or um, diminish that was an incredibly evil regime that existed during the 1930s and 40s. Mm. Um, but uh, the Roman Empire, um, they were not objectively the good guys mm -mm. to to uh, the Jews, and sure. Jesus was a Jew. And um, you can't find in the Gospels that he said one bad thing about a Roman soldier or a centurion. Um, his message um, very much... Um, against the hopes and wishes of his, of his disciples was not a political message. It was a message of the kingdom is here and the kingdom is not of this world, it's a kingdom of the heart. And so that's so powerful because it means that the kingdom of heaven can invade um, and reign literally in any political dynamic to include when your people are occupied by a foreign military power like the Romans. So it's so interesting to your point of not being anti-military. I mean, you know, we have examples of Jesus, you know, healing the centurion servant. You know, his response to centurion, you can almost feel this relief where Jesus says, finally, somebody who understands the nature of authority, you get it. 
because you're a man in authority. When you say go, people go. When you say come, they come. And Jesus is like, that's me. You get it. And so it's just so fascinating um, to me just to think about um, just how Jesus approached everybody. And the problem is not, it has never been the Republican Party or the Libertarian Party or the Progressive Party or the Democratic Party. And we, we fight and die on those hills all day long. The problems and the battlefield is in the heart and mind of every human being. And until we embrace that, until we recognize that, that I can be just as much a part of the problem and dysfunction in the conversation as the other, whoever the other is, then we will just continue to, to, to fall into these feedback loops um, and two camps, whatever those two camps are. And so I think particularly as followers of Jesus, we have to remember that and not conflate um, any legal document or any earthly system, even if that earthly system like our constitution, our declaration of independence is imbued with ideas of the divine and ideas of God-given mm-hmm. rights. It's not the kingdom of heaven. The Declaration of Independence is not the kingdom of heaven. That is not the highest thing that we can aspire to. Um, The highest thing that we can aspire to is to love God and love our fellow man. That's what Jesus calls us to do. Um, That's the sum total of the law. That's it. And so that is both, that's almost too simple. Can't be that simple. Um, But in reality, that's really hard because uh, some days I don't like myself and a lot of days I definitely don't like whoever the other is sure. and they're the problem. So I think that's it's one, it's a problem of context, but second, if I could do just one thing um, and, and institute a policy of um, in this day and age, I would force people to eat together and share meals together. Mm. So we had, um, there's, a restu- works, dude. there's a restaurant down the street here, um, my daughter and I, Two nights ago, um, you know, we, we were hungry. We walked by it uh, here in Nashville and, uh, you know, Southern comfort food, you know, sold. Let's, let's go eat. Well, we didn't realize that it's family style dining, meaning they, um, they bring all the dishes out to you and you, you know, serve yourself just like you're at somebody's dinner table. But it's family style dining at big tables where you get seated with whomever else is there. there. And so uh, we didn't know that. And first of all, we're, we're being seated with, um, you know, a bus driver uh, who's a Nashvilleian his whole life. And at first we were just like, why are you following us to our table? And then we sort of slowly realized- You figured it out. Oh, and then three more people are seated at our table and they have the same look of confusion in their eyes, you know, from North Carolina and Atlanta. And then two other people um, come and sit down and we're all like slowly, we're, we're, it was funny because other than Bill, who I think eats there two or three nights a week, mm-hmm. um, and he's telling us how it works, you know, pass to the left, you know, pass the sweet tea and whatever else. Um, all three, you could all see these three different groups of people, about seven of us who were just um, confused. And we had conversation and interaction and commonality uh, with people that we would have never have had. And, um, you know, people will, will hear that. Uh, I'm sure uh, some people will hear that and just roll their eyes and say, that's cute. That's nice. You know, I wish it was all that simple, but what are you going to do about you know, Hillary, what are you going to do about Nancy Pelosi? What are you going to do about Donald Trump? You know, you you need to ground yourself in the real world. The real world is all of us need to eat. All of us have need. All of us were once kids. All of us have brokenness and we tend to operate out of those places of brokenness. And so I think we would do well to put down our phones, shut off Netflix and log off of social media for 30 to 45 minutes and break bread with other humans. And instead of starting from a place of all of our disagreements, um, start from the basic place of what our common need is of nourishment and see what happens. Yes, that is <laughs> that is something that my family and I do. Mm. We're trying to do it much better. We've always done it pretty well. We've always brought people together over food. The last couple of years, it's been more focused on trying to do the hard thing because yeah. it is hard of getting people that we know we fundamentally disagree on certain things with around our table. It's super easy to say, hey, pal, hey, pals, come on over for food and drinks. Right. And then we're going to go out back and smoke cigars together. Like, that's easy. Right. That's easy. Right. Right. Like, it just makes sense. Yeah. But when it's somebody that you're like, oh, I know you voted for him or her. That's right. And I do not like that. Come on over. That's exactly right. And a couple things come to mind. One is I just saw this social media post that's getting shared around these couple of black guys that were sitting at a restaurant that invited an elderly white woman over to eat with them. That's awesome. And that was like big news. And 
A, that is big news. Right. But B, it shouldn't be big news. That's exactly right. Yeah. That because people were just like, they were just, it was just a stunning thing for people to see. Like, you just wouldn't think that they would invite her over. Right. right? And that just shouldn't be a thing. Right. That's right. It shouldn't. And then two, I did this thing um, with some friends a few months back where around the table we had a bunch of people, some that I knew more than others. To my right was my buddy Bin Yad Sharif, who lives here. He's a Kurd, uh, Iraqi Muslim mm. refugee. Mm. His family, they were caught in the Cairo airport uh, coming over on Muslim Band Day. Wow. Whenever that Muslim Band went into effect, they got stopped at the Cairo airport, got sent back wow. after years of trying to get here. Um, so he, they finally made it. Wonderful family. And then there's, there's conservatives. There's people who uh voted for trump there's all like just everybody we have liberals progressives conservatives libertarians and everybody and you know what none of that mattered at the table yeah yeah none of that mattered for three four i mean it went way later i actually had to bump a meeting i had this like late meeting for some reason at 11 p.m that night Mm. and we had to bump the 11 o'clock meeting from supper time because it just went wow and it was beautiful that needs to happen more because when you realize that like, oh, you might've voted for him or her, but you're not a bigot, a racist, a xenophobe. Your kids have to go to soccer practice. My kids have to go to soccer Mm -hmm. practice. Let's go to soccer practice. That's right. Oh, you guys are going on vacation. Why don't you come to vacation with us? Like that is a wonderful thing to force people to do if you were to, uh, if you were ever put in the position of becoming, (laughs) I mean, we just got to do more of that stuff. Yeah, I agree pro-military, anti-military, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, pro whoever the next president's gonna be, anti whoever the next president's gonna be. Like we all have so much in common. Yeah. What I've tried to remind myself in the last three years is that everybody knows where I stand politically on this <laughs> podcast. But just to remind myself that there are a million and one things mm-hmm. that Trump or any leader, mm-hmm. they can never touch. That's right. There's a million things that I can do and do do every day mm-hmm. and that I'll do tomorrow and the next day that they just have no say over. Yeah. Those are the things I have control over. Those are the, th- I mean, let's give a damn is completely built on the premise of if everybody does these small things mm-hmm. each and every day, we get somewhere. Yeah, we it's do. It's not these big things. Going back to the, a lot of times there's no big turning point. It's these yeah. small little things. It's all these small little acts that build up that change a place. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Okay, let's begin to wrap this up. We've been going <laughs> on. Here's the last big question. Mm-hmm. Someday, many years from now, you're going to die. Hopefully it's many, many years from now. Mm-hmm. But on that day, I am asked, hypothetically, I'm asked to give your eulogy. Mm. So your family, your friends, people that you have loved and served through your book or books at that point, (laughs) the Elliott Fund, all the work you've done, they're all there to celebrate and mourn your life. What do you hope that I would say about you on that day? I think I would just hope that um, I was known as somebody who who followed Jesus and who um, did their best to love people in the way that he's loved me. That's that's what I, I hope I would be known for. Awesome, great legacy. One last one that I'm just thinking about because of the trauma that you've been through and the things that you've gone through. If you three days ago, April 22nd, 2019, Stephen could go back and talk to April 22nd, 2005. Four. But or after, at the anniversary, I'm thinking, yeah. I'm thinking after, yeah. I'm thinking like you've now been, you know, reassigned. It's a whole new thing. You're dealing with all the stuff you've already talked about. What would you, what would you communicate to Stephen April 22nd, 2005? Um, I would tell him to give up and say, stop trying to do it on your own. Mm. Um, stop trying to isolate. Um, and, um, yeah, that that your guilt and shame to whatever extent that that was rightly ascribed in many respects isn't that special. There's a strange amount of pride that can get wrapped around our pain and around our failures where um, we begin to believe that we're in fact unique or special in our brokenness, mm. um, which we're not that original <laughs> in terms of that, in terms of our ways in which we were fallen. And um I would have told him that you are loved and at the same time, you're you're not that special mm. and it's gonna be okay. And that the more people you invite into this story and this absolute disaster, the easier it's gonna be. And, and frankly, the more people that uh, might actually be helped as a result of it. And so um, something maybe along those lines is what I would have said. Thanks for sharing that. 
Yeah. So May 21, War Story comes out. Yes. You get it on Amazon. You can pre-order now. You can. I'll have all the links for Elliot Fund, for the book, everything in the show notes. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Today. Thanks, this Nick. Was, this was fun. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening in, friends. Wild story, right? While recording, there were a few times where I didn't have much to say in response to things he said because I was overwhelmed by the immensity and intensity of parts of his story. And if you know me, you know it's very rare that I lack anything to say. Please visit theelliotfund.org for articles, books, videos, and other resources you can use to become an advocate for those serving in our military. And buy Stephen's forthcoming book, War Story, a memoir, on or before May 21 on Amazon or pre-order it from your local library. And if you're like me and you don't usually read things like this, I know you'll still enjoy it and be challenged by it. You can find links and more information on this podcast conversation and Let's Give a Damn in general by going to letsgiveadam.com. If you love what we're doing on this show, please tell a friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or consider throwing a few dollars our way each month to support the production and execution of this show by visiting patreon.com slash let's give a damn. This podcast episode was produced by yours truly and the fantastic Chad Snavely. The music is by The Amazing Propaganda. Make sure to check out all his music on Spotify or wherever you listen to your music. Can't wait to spend time with you next week. Love y'all. Peace. <laughs>